Good Divorce Podcast with Kate Brown. Hello, I'm Kate Brown. I'm a divorce and separation mediator. I've also been divorced, have three children of my own and two stepkids. In this podcast, I want to share my personal experience and draw on the insights of some amazing guests who have loads to say on the subject professionally and personally, and by doing so, help you have the best breakup possible. In this episode, I'm joined by Aisha Vardag, one of Family Law's most high-profile and remarkable women. Descriptions of her range from solicitor for billionaires, the diva of divorce, and simply star lawyer. She rose to fame in 2010 for winning a landmark case in the Supreme Court, which made prenuptial agreements legally enforceable in England and Wales. Aisha's known for a rigorous legal intellect and her direct, no-nonsense style. Her niche is representing the wealthiest of the uber-wealthy, often celebrities and international high-profile figures. But I guess if you can afford to pay for the best, then why wouldn't you go straight to the door of someone with a track record of winning multi-million pound settlements for her clients? But hers is undoubtedly a high-stakes role, where expectations run extremely high. I'm keen to know what fuels Aisha's fearless passion and how she knocks it out of the park day after day. Aisha Vardag, welcome. It's wonderful to have you. You're one of the UK's leading, if not the leading divorce lawyer. And I wanted to know, why is it that clients choose you? Well, thank you so much for having me. Um, There are a number of factors. I think the most important one is that I have a very strong track record of of winning. And so people come to me when they really when they really need to win, when there's a, a lot at stake, whether that's to do with their their children or their home or the asset base that they're wanting to protect or that they're wanting to have their fair share of. And uh, my USP is really absolutely pushing the law, uh, exploring it, seeing what you can do with it and pushing it in order to get the best results for my clients. And that really quite forceful, quite dynamic approach is something that I've sort of defined myself by. So that's the main thing, I think. And who are most of your clients? Do they have to have a certain level of wealth? Yes. I mean, we deal with some people with smaller asset bases, but the majority of our clients have assets in the millions. We deal with some, you know, in in our other offices where we've got people on lower rates. I deal with people in the tens of millions or hundreds of millions, really. And what happens if they can't get their hands on any of that money and that's part of the issue? There are a number of ways to access money if that money is in the case. So very often, we'll have the the person who hasn't had the money during the marriage um, on a statistical basis, that's still often the wife, although by no means always the wife. Um, But uh, the person who's been the homemaker doesn't necessarily have ready access to the funds. But on the other hand, they're entitled to an equal share of what's been built up during the marriage. And if not much has been built up during the marriage, they're entitled to um, a, a very generous 
taking care of their needs. So there's money in the case for them in order to secure their futures. And what we do in that situation is that we obtain funding for them either from the party with the money, often the husband, or the litigation lenders who are able to to fund cases where they believe that there is a prospective high return for the client. And so it's worth it both for them and for the client to do that. But obviously, our preference is to to obtain the fees, to get the fees paid by the party with the money. And the courts do that because they want both parties to have a level playing field. They don't want the rich one to have a top lawyer and the one who doesn't have the money not to have a quality of arms. It's obviously a very daunting process, filing for divorce. What what are most people worried about and how do you prepare them for that? There are so many worries and it varies from case to case. In some cases, there is a genuine fear for life and limb, effectively. What will he do when he gets this? And in those circumstances, we, we take a number of measures, either court-assisted measures like injunctions, um, or just practical things like um, making sure that our client knows when uh, their spouse is being served and can make sure that they're away from the spouse at that time. Generally, we find that once something is within the domain of the courts, um, anyone who has been violent or abusive really gets their act together because they know they're under scrutiny and suddenly they stop doing it because they know that it will, um, you know, that there'll uh, be consequences for them. So that's one concern that people have. People are concerned about their time with their children and uh, what's going to happen then. Um, They're worried about spending less time with their children. They're worried about the children spending time with a new partner of um, of their spouse, you know, with with a husband's new girlfriend, and um, that can be very hard to get one's head around. Um, they are very worried, very often about money, about the future. If they've had a certain lifestyle, they want to keep that, and they want the financial security for their future that um, you know they they've they've that, that they're really counting on. Yeah. And uh, that's where, well, that's another place where it really matters to get a top lawyer uh, if you've got assets at stake to to make sure that you get that. Because actually the difference between an okay result and a very good result is absolutely huge. It's absolutely life-changing. Obviously, as a mediator, I take a, a, a slightly different approach. I very collaborative and, you know, to try to get people in a room together to sort out their differences. Do you ever uh, refer people to mediation or what's your view about the mediation process? We regularly refer people to mediation. Um, it's fantastic when there is scope within a partnership to resolve things by way of mediation. A lot of the people that come to me have very little scope for doing that because the the, the numbers and the, the difference um, in what's at stake, the difference between the two positions is so large that it's become clear that they're just not going to agree on that. Um, but where you have a couple that are that have a 
civilized relationship with each other, that they uh, have a they're able to converge in terms of their perspective on how things should result resolve or their scope for converging then absolutely mediation is the way forward when we don't i mean obviously within the within the court process we do a lot of negotiation we have roundtable meetings and uh, although roundtable meetings aren't really round a table it's more of a sort of shuttle diplomacy (laughs) between yes between rooms but we get people all together and try to work things out and that sometimes you need to be bargaining in the shadow of the law as it were knowing that if you don't reach an agreement it's not you can't just sort of carry on you know that you're going to end up on a court deadline but uh but for so many cases it really does make sense to try to mediate early on and try to just avoid the whole grisly process and uh stay away from the courts and from <laughs> and from lawyers altogether yes because one complaint i often get is that lawyers ramp up the tension and then the costs spiral and things take years is that just a necessary part of winning a case? No, I absolutely don't think it's a necessary part of winning a case. I mean, I'm seen as as very tough, but not abusive, un- unpleasant, impolite. And yet there are many lawyers who do behave in that way to the other side and about the spouse on the other side. And I just fundamentally think that's wrong. You're obviously, um, you know, if, you, if you're coming into litigation, you want to, to win your situation one way or another, but you don't want to come out of it hating your former partner, having them hate you, finding it really difficult to co-parent, having created huge wounds on top of the pain of parting. So I really very much feel that family lawyers have a responsibility to behave in a a kind, considerate and decent way with families. And remember that in general, they're dealing with two perfectly decent people who are just choosing not to spend their life together anymore and need to distribute their assets and sort out their time with their children. One has to be practical and businesslike. One has to be tough for one's client, but that doesn't involve being nasty. And I think there's no place for that very old fashioned approach within family law. ask you, how did you get here? I mean, how did you end up building this business? Tell me a bit about your story. I initially thought I was going to be some sort of professional and I was just very focused on get a good education, get into a top institution, rise within that. And um, wasn't thinking in an entrepreneurial way at all. So I, you know, went to Cambridge, did a master's in Brussels, did stuff with the UN, then I went to Linklater's. And I really thought that I would just focus on my career at Linklater's, on becoming a partner there, etc. And then actually, continually, my personal life derailed me. And that was kind of ultimately my salvation. Um, I had to leave Linklater's because my husband, uh, whom I married when I was there, he was actually my 
principal so when I was a trainee uh, he became a partner and it was determined that it would be best that I uh, fall on my sword and disappear so there wasn't a partner married to an assistant within the firm oh, goodness so me. They, those are the days eh <laughs> and uh, so I, I'm absolutely sure they don't they wouldn't dream of doing anything like that now and we were in Moscow at that stage and I was uh, pregnant so I shuffled off to England had my baby joined um, Wild Gottschall and Mangies where I was recruited by somebody who was excellent creators and uh, did a bit of time there in capital markets didn't find that that suited me at all I at Linklaters I'd been on much more you know structured project finance you know diamond mines and you know power stations and things like that doing capital markets I found it very dull and I crossed over and went to the bar, got myself called to the bar, went to Four New Square for pupillage, which was really the the place um, for what I was doing. And again, that was still commercial negligence work. And then my divorce hit. And in the midst of that, with my two teeny weeny boys of one and a half and three, and this uh, very demanding job and this utterly miserable divorce, um, I ultimately decided to stop working and spend some time at home with the children, just doing a little bit of consulting and that sort of thing. And then bizarrely, what happened is that my divorce lawyer, the very eminent Raymond Tooth, hired me. And so I went and uh, joined him in his firm, and uh, which was, you know, which was great fun and, uh, you know, a tremendous education in dealing with those sorts of cases. Yes, because I was I was going to just ask you specifically, I mean, how much did your own divorce influence your career path? Oh, very much so. And there were ways in which I saw things being handled in my own divorce that weren't the way that I would have uh, chosen to handle them myself with, you know, greater knowledge and hindsight. And I very much wanted to do things differently. So I wanted to bring actually my Linklater's city deal making, let's be sensible, let's get things done um, approach and the city approach to quality into uh, the divorce world. And um, that was very much the platform on which I launched the firm. I launched it a few years later, after I'd finished my time at, uh, with Ray, and I'd finished also um, a bit of time teaching the family law course at Queen Mary's, um, which I did while I was having another baby. And uh, so, um, <laughs> and then it, it came to thinking, right, well, you know, my two little boys, they have their father who can, um, you know, pay their school fees and that's, you know, a big help for them. But uh, for my little girl, her father isn't in a position to help with all of that. So if I don't want her to have a very different life from that of her brothers, I'd better go and, you know, get moving and um, and start generating some income to look after her um, on a bigger scale than I could do as an academic. And that was when I went and looked at joining other firms and again felt very depressed and felt, no, 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 but I want to do it differently. And uh, and so then I launched Vardex, which was then Aisha Vardex Solicitors back in 2005 from my spare room. And it was sort of just me and the cat. And uh, <laughs> the first clients came in through such a random series of events. So it was just really, it, initially, a lot of luck 
And um, but also, you know, I think luck happens when you grab opportunities when they come to you. Um, but also um, just really pushing my USP, which was don't look at just how things are always done. Look at how they could and should be done. And that was, of course, what led me to changing the law on um, on prenups in England. Yes, I wanted to talk to you about that a little bit later. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm just still interested. I mean, what was it about your upbringing that gave you the, the skills, the drive, the ambition to take this profession and run right to the top? I think I had quite a a distinctive upbringing in some ways. It was sort of almost a mix of two cultures and then in other ways, not quite. Um, My father was, uh, is um, a Pashtun politician. So originally, you know, North of India, Afghanistan, um, and, uh, you know, ethnically Pathan, which isn't, which in itself, a sort of very particular tribal um, identity. So he was a politician in Pakistan, actually. And uh, he had met my mother when they were both in Oxford when he was at Magdalen. And uh, and she is very, very English, English, Scottish. And uh, they didn't grow up together. They separated during my childhood. I saw him very occasionally. And, uh, and I grew up very much with my mother. So it was a funny old situation of having this very exotic father who was in, you know, very sort of elite economic circumstances. And uh, and my mother and I and my grandmother, who were really, you know, as poor as church mice, we were absolutely broke, uh, because she had she had no support from him, she had no support from her father. Um, she was a single mother, trying to look after her mother and a, and a little child and, you know, and, and to work and to do everything. She was quite amazing, focused very heavily on my education and very much said, you must realise your potential. You must get back to where, you know, we as a family used to be because her family had been in different circumstances before and where your father's family is. Um, we've got to make sure that you realise every might of potential that you have. And so I think that drive just pushed me to to achieve things. Also, I think, you know, frankly, not having any money when you grow up is, you know, if you do have a certain degree of drive, it, it's a huge motivator. From 14, I was washing dishes in the Queen's Lane coffee house and cl- washing dishes and clearing tables and making omelettes, bizarrely. I make an amazing omelette. <laughs> and that, that degree of independence and making a contribution, you know, it, it, I think it instills a very good work ethic. And I worked all the way through school and uh, most of university. And, you know, that going up and down the high street asking, can I speak to the manager? Do you have any jobs? Is, uh, you know, it, it just, it instills a degree of self-confidence about being able to make your way in whatever circumstances you find yourself. So as you mentioned, you, you really rose to fame for winning the um, a Supreme Court case, which led to prenups being considered legally binding. How important was that? It was of fundamental importance. As uh, some commentators have said, in terms of you know real legal principles in family law, uh, there was a case in 2000, white and white, that, were, that gave equality, and then Radmacher gave autonomy, 
because it's far more than just prenuptial agreements. It's a sense that couples can agree for themselves the way forward and accept in special circumstances, the court will honour that. So it's not, it's individual and, you know, personal autonomy versus state control versus a nanny state saying, no, no, we don't care what you've agreed. We think it should be different. You've always got to come through us and, uh, and we're going to change everything for you. So that was, it was very important in that way. Another way in which it was important was, um, I felt very strongly it was for women. Um, the, the reason that prenups were seen as, um, as contrary to public policy, there were two parts. One, because they contemplated divorce. Well, okay, we got rid of that um, uh, relatively easily. But the other was this sense that women are very vulnerable creatures and and prenups are, you know, disenfranchising them and we shouldn't let that happen in the courts. And my position was very much that uh, women expect now rightly to have equal opportunity equal uh, equal um access to power equal uh, responsibility therefore and so saying well women are just so so desperate to marry and so sort of befuddled and weak that if they sign an agreement with you know proper opportunity for legal advice and all of that they can't be held to it uh, the poor silly weak creatures i think it was fundamentally very very bad for um for the position of women as equals in society and so shifting that was uh, was very important but but haven't there been cases where women have been disadvantaged by prenups unquestionably but what you have to look at there is first of all a prenup doesn't uh, stick, isn't binding if it leaves someone destitute, if it if it doesn't meet basic need. And so it's if you marry with a prenup, you can expect to have your basic needs met. What was happening instead of people marrying with prenups is that people were just not marrying at all. Increasingly, rich people were choosing not to marry because the 60s removed um, the need for, you know, decoupled sex and marriage the 70s and 80s decoupled decoupled uh, children and marriage so there really isn't any need in most cultures to marry and people were just saying no I'm not doing that unless I can marry in terms that we agree whereby I can protect what I want to protect then you know why would I get married and so it wasn't a choice as I said to the law commissioner it's not a choice between um, marriage with the prenup and marriage without a prenup, it's choice between marriage and with a prenup and no marriage at all. And if there's no marriage at all, then effectively you can be left completely destitute uh, without any financial claims, without anything that looks after you in any way. What a prenup enables you to do is to negotiate at a time that you want to marry and at a time that uh, that your partner wants to marry you to negotiate something fair that allows you to go ahead with that and then put it in a drawer and hopefully never worry about it again but if it comes up the other advantage is if it does come up you don't have to deal with the courts it isn't always the case that you have one party who's much more financially vulnerable than the other Um, my husband and I my present husband um, married 
with a prenup and uh, we did so because we wanted to avoid the court ever being involved in our affairs if we were to part we wanted everyone to mind their own business and be in a position to sort things out for ourselves and to know from the beginning that that was the way we were going to approach it so obviously one can marry without a prenup one can say I'm not doing it I'm not having it if you want to marry me then um, this is the deal. Or you can choose to marry with a prenup, and it's always a choice, no forced marriage. And um, Or, of course, you might be facing the prospect of not marrying at all. So it's all still about choice. I think what I found most difficult was the idea that women are incapable of making choices for themselves. Is the UK still uh, the best place to get divorced if you're a woman? Or is that changing? No, it, it still is. I mean, you know, there are some American states that are comparable, but um, that and that varies. But uh, yes, it very much still is. The combination of the redistributive, um, equal share, no discrimination between breadwinner and homemaker approach, the 50-50 split, and um, the very rigorous investigative powers that the court has and that the court will endorse within the process. So it's not just, well, 50% of what. It enables you to go and dig in and find what the assets are, which is why we've got a financial forensics department doing that, because it's all very well, you know, um, having having half. But unless you actually get the truth of what that half is, um, you it, it doesn't really serve you properly. So, yeah, England is still the best place uh, for the party without the money. So is that unfair to men or? Well, it really depends on your fundamental perspective. Do you think that women um, who are the home breadwinner and homemaker in a marital partnership um, alongside a man who goes out and works and generates huge amounts of money, do you think they're making an equal contribution or not? Do you think there is equality between breadwinner and homemaker or not? And it's quite a philosophical divide. And I think that most men who are making the money really feel that it's not, that they're doing more. And I think, uh, you know, the women particularly, you'll have situations where you'll have a wife who really isn't doing anything with the children. She isn't doing anything to take care of the home. She's just going out and, you know, having her tennis lessons. Then she goes off with her tennis coach and uh, says to the husband, I want, you know, half of everything. And he's been slogging away, doing the school run, looking after the kids at weekends, you know, all of that. Is it really right? Well, no, in that situation, it doesn't seem fair. But when you've got someone who's been shoulder to shoulder, putting their very best into the family aspect of things, albeit that doesn't result in cash, um, then it does look fair. So, you know, it depends on the circumstances and it depends on uh, the case. But the law doesn't really distinguish very much between those two cases. How far do you think things are changing in that there is an expectation for women post-divorce to do some kind of paid work and also an expectation on fathers. I know I'm being very general here, but on fathers to um, share the parenting of their children more than they used to. Yeah. I mean, I think the law is slowly catching up with the realities of society. And in some cases, it's slightly ahead ahead of the realities of society. Women 
do work now. They look after themselves. They make their own way. And, um, and fathers do take care of children, love them, manage to look after them. And slowly the law is beginning to recognize that, yeah, they can play an equal part in that. And, uh, and one thing for women to do, actually, I think, is to not just to define themselves by reference to their children, if they're doing that. Um, what they can have after a divorce is a balanced life in which they build a career, um, they build time for themselves and to develop themselves. They build new relationships and they have the time and space to do that because the fathers are taking some of the burden of looking after the children. And so you have much less of a prospect of, you know, the poor victim woman who's left. Um, it's much more a partnership of equals that dissolves and then both are able to make their own way in the future. Absolutely. Have you ever felt disadvantaged as a, a woman in the law world? Um, I mean, there's always been this kind of picture of, you know, the old boys network, two barristers, a judge, all men slugging it out in court. Did you feel it hard to come into that world? I didn't find it hard to come into this world, because perhaps because I went to a girls' school and, uh, you know, we, we were always brought up with the, that and my mother was brought up with the idea, well, you know, you might go and be pre Secretary General of the United Nations or maybe you'll be Prime Minister or, you know, so many options. <laughs> so, and uh, <laughs> High ambitions for you. Yeah. And so, so, no, in terms of me personally, I didn't feel any fear about it. I did find it astonishing when again and again, again, I came up against child-related sexism. It didn't seem to be a problem with being a woman by the time I was doing it. It was a problem with having children. I was told in one set of chambers, um, oh, you know, two small children when it came up socially, that wasn't on your CV. <laughs> I said I didn't, didn't <laughs> think it was relevant. I was, uh, I was told I wouldn't be able to manage at the bar as a single mother with two small children, even though I'd apparently made no concession to it in uh, in the work they had seen, but they were sure that I wouldn't be able to do that in the future. So I was told that. I was told that uh, at the time I was leaving Linklaters, I um, was offered a job in a top city firm in their international law department. Everybody was very excited about it. And um, and they said, right, so start in January. And I said, okay, January is great. Um, I will have to take up to 10 days off because I'll be having a baby then. And if I have a cesarean again, then <laughs> oh, I'll, I'll need up to 10 days. And, um, but, you know, but then I'm, uh, I'm yours. I'll carry straight on. And I had carried pretty much straight on with my first one. But uh, but the chap said, oh, no, 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 let's let's see about all this after you've had the baby and then disappeared and kind of ghosted me. <laughs> so, oh, no. so, you know, <laughs> repeatedly. Yeah. Child related. I've had that. I've had people saying there's no effing maternity leave here and um, all sorts. So, yeah, children related sexism. I've had it in abundance. And that's part of what made me think, well, you know, damn you all. I'll make my own firm. 
And uh, I encourage uh, my female lawyers to go ahead and have children. You know, we have a big infertility crisis. Go ahead and have children when you're young. Come back. You know, it's not going to derail you. Um, and uh, we have, you know, lots of directors who've been with the firm through their careers and, um, you know, had children in the firm. So, you know, that's very important to me to do things in a way that enables women who want to work, who keep want to keep on building their careers uh, to do that. Because the idea that, you know, everybody's the same, everybody's going to choose to give up or to choose to, you know, to take a different track is, um, is, is quite wrong. Now, I'm afraid I do have to mention Cardigan Gate, mm. just as you mentioned your firm. And um, I I know that you famously brought in a no cardigan dress code <laughs> um, that you felt you needed to implement in the workplace. How did that happen? And do you regret that? No, not at all. Um, and, and please don't apologise for mentioning cardigans. I mean, I actually had thought about publishing my dress code um, myself at a certain point because it was quite funny. It was a very lightly expressed um, email, but just trying to, well, actually, there were several of them over the years, trying to to smarten people up and to make them elegant and professional in their dress because we serve high net worth clients. People don't want to come in and see a lawyer with, you know, woolly tights and a big, you know, fuzzy cardigan and their hair all straggling down their back. And, you know, they, they don't expect that from a lawyer. They expect someone to be chic and polished and to be uh, doing, you know, according them the respect that um, a group appearance provides so uh, and the other thing is you know I have lots of new um, graduates absolute top graduates coming in and they come from all sorts of different uh, backgrounds and economic circumstances and I wanted to give some guidelines that would help people just have simple things that they could be smart with and uh, it was it, it was uh, I, I actually I had um, a message from someone who'd worked there before saying gosh I read that in the papers and I remembered how fun and how glamorous it was at Bardex and you know we, we're a glamorous firm we like that um, and uh, we haven't found that any of our clients have um, have found it a bad thing that we expect our people to be elegant and well-groomed. Mm. And I suppose it is always easier for men because they just put on a suit every day. And um, yeah, but I mean, the, I suppose they the, could have very scruffy beards no, no, and all no. the rest the of it. The dress code um, related to men as well, you know, prefer double cuffs and cufflinks, no brown shoes. I met somebody the other day who used to be at the firm and said, I still don't wear brown <laughs> shoes to work. I still don't wear them. And, uh, you know, but no, very much it applied to to men too. So even though you're, you know, you're obviously so well known, top of the profession, do you ever have times where it's just extremely daunting going into court and representing someone who's 100% relying on you to win for them? It's always daunting. The, the sense of responsibility is always immense. Because, you know, time goes on, you really start caring about your client. And um, it I think if you didn't feel daunted, it would be because you didn't care. But, you know, the, the the thing is you have to feel daunted and yet push through so that you can do what they need you to do because they need you to fight for them. Do you really believe there's such a thing as a good divorce? Yes, I do. I believe that increasingly as people are starting to recognize that life is long 
and a relationship that may have been very good, that had no fault on either side, um, that was between very good people and produced good things, uh, can come to an end as the phases of life shift and people grow apart, and that then they can part with mutual respect in a civilized way, in a decent way, keep on co-parenting. Maybe they still, you know, spend weekends together. Maybe they even still go on holiday together, perhaps with their new partners too. These things are all possible and do happen. And increasingly, now that the the fault, the victimhood is being taken out of divorce. And as I say, there's increasingly this sense that it is equals parting, um, there is that opportunity for a good divorce, for a decent, civilised parting of the ways. And that is what we should all be aiming for, because it's very hard to keep a marriage that you start up in, say, you know, your early 20s, going all the way through to 100, and we're looking at 100-year lives now. It's a long time to keep coinciding on the phases that you have. And when we start to recognise that sometimes a chapter will end so that a new chapter can begin, uh, and that isn't a calamity, um, that's when we'll all start to be a bit happier. Aisha, that was absolutely fascinating. Thanks so much for all your insights. And it's just been great to talk to you. Oh, thank you very much. It's been my pleasure. I was talking to divorce lawyer Aisha Vardag, founder and president of Vardag Solicitors. I was fascinated to hear Aisha's backstory of how she reached the top of her game, juggling a divorce and overcoming a disbelief by her male colleagues that you could be a woman with a big job and also have children. Clearly, you can't underplay the self-confidence and determination that were nurtured in childhood, the private girls' school that expected great things of her, and undoubtedly a supreme legal mind. These all set her on a path to success, and then her personal experience of divorce made family law a perfect fit. Most divorcing couples, of course, could never dream of hiring Aisha to fight their case. But for those with large coffers and millions to fight for, she's exactly what they need. Join me for the next episode of The Good Divorce Podcast. The Good Divorce Podcast with Kate Brown. Follow and rate on your favourite podcast app.